tax scams, bad guys arrested, and 2FA, what could possibly go wrong. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He be Paul. And Paul, let me be the first to wish you happy tax scam season, my friend. (laughs) Oh, dear. I guess it's particularly relevant to the U.S. just right now, isn't it? Yes. We are girding our financial loins collectively, getting ready to file our taxes. Of course, any time of the year kind of works for a tax scam, doesn't it? Because, oh, you could, you're going to be audited. If you're in the UK, the tax year is April to March. South Africa, it's March to February. Australia, it's July to June. So everywhere there's something going on. But in the US, it, it probably fits in quite well now. So do be on the alert. Yes. So we will talk about our first of possibly many tax scam stories shortly. But first, we'd like to begin the show with a fun fact. And I found this fact to be very fun. The etymology of the word helicopter may not be what you think. It is not a combination of heli and copter, but helico, a derivation of helix, in this case meaning spiral, and pter, from the Greek pteron, meaning wings or feathers, and commonly used to describe flying creatures such as the pteranodon and pterodactyl. So it's helico plus pter. How do you like that? That's great, Doug. Like helicobacter. That's the screw-shaped bacterium that two Aussies, whose name I forget, got the Nobel Prize after being laughed at for many years when they discovered that ulcers are caused by bacteria because nobody believed that bacteria could live in the gut because it's too acidic. And everyone laughed at them and said, it's not a bacterium, forget it. And they found Helicobacter pylori. Well. The screw-shaped bacterium of the stomach. And I'd never connected that with Helicobacter. (laughs) A free and interesting bonus fun fact is always welcome on the Naked Security Podcast. Love your work. And let's talk about uh, someone else getting to work. You got your first tax scam of the year, and it is an odd tax scam that doesn't really ask for much. That's correct, Doug. I thought I would write about it just because, as you say, it's that time of year for people in the US. And in previous years, when we've written about tax scams, they've almost always been either high pressure something bad will happen if you don't click this link, log in and fix this, you could get audited. Who wants that? Mm -hmm. Or like the one that I got this personally last year from apparently from the UK tax office, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, a tax rebate of £278.44p has been issued to you. Click here. We spoke about it on the podcast, didn't we? It's like perfect facsimile of the HMRC login page, almost perfect facsimile. Now this one, this year, This was obviously US-based because it mentioned W-2. In the UK, the equivalent form is the P-60. That's the the thing you get from your employer that says, this is how much we paid you, and this is how much tax we've already taken away and paid to the revenue. And it just says, 2021 new client fillings. They mean filings, obviously. Mm -hmm. I I intend to change CPA uh, for people outside the US. A CPA is a CA, Chartered Accountant. I intend to change CPA for 2021. Would like to know if if you're taking new clients. I've got all the documents. I just haven't quite got my W-2 yet. In other words, I'm nearly there. Then it says, kindly advise on how to proceed and if I can send forth all the available documents and what are your fees for individual returns. Thank you. And then the person 
claims to be a managing director. So it's basically fishing for, if you like, a little bit of business friendship, I guess, Doug. It is odd because I am reasonably sure you are not an accountant. So this is a, seems like a spray and pray sent to who knows how many people on the hopes that some of them are accountants and of those they are responding and saying, oh yeah, I can help you out. Let's talk business. I'm sure that another part of this, Doug, is that it just looks like somebody who basically emailed the wrong business slash person. So you can imagine people going, oh, you must have made a mistake. I'm not a CPA. You've got the wrong person. In other words, although it's spray and pray, the prey is not if the person doesn't click the link, then the scam isn't going to work. It sort of feels to me like a kind of romance scam. It's an interesting way to start a conversation that gets people to identify their willingness to communicate, if you like. Well, we've got some advice, the first of which is, and you touched on this a little bit, be aware before you share. Yes, because every little bit that you give away about yourself might not feel that it matters individually, but it does help somebody who has your worst interests at heart to build a backstory that gels with you and maintains your interest in just the same way that romance scammers, if you come along and say, oh, I like the movies of XYZ director, they don't say, oh, no, I hate that person. The romance scammer just adapts their behavior, their backstory, their made up life to match the kind of things that will keep you on the hook. As we've said before many times, if in doubt, don't give it out. Yes, simply put, if it feels like a scam, maybe just back yourself. Just assume that it is. Okay, and uh, no reply is often a good reply. Yes, I think a lot of people, perhaps older people more, although with younger people there's always the FOMO, isn't there, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. Whereas with older people there's a sense that the idea that you would just show someone the hand and just not reply, like if they knocked on the door, you just go, no, I won't answer. That was seen as being a bit difficult or a bit, you know, maybe a bit pretentious. If that's the way you feel in real life, then you're probably a nice person to meet and know. But online, it just means that you're probably a bit too likely to give away stuff that you shouldn't. I did learn this week uh, that the opposite of FOMO is JOMO, the joy of missing out, which is perfect for an introvert like me. I do like missing out on things, so I, it's the opposite of FOMO. I'm going to adopt that. I think it could be very uplifting. Thank you for that, Douglas. You're welcome. And uh, finally, listen to friends and family. If friends and family, we said this last week, are advising you that maybe you are in over your head, maybe you are talking to somebody who is out to fleece you, remember Jomo. <laughs> like if they're right and you listen to them, you will be much, 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 much happier. Okay, great tips, especially in light of this being Data Privacy Week and Data Privacy Day on Friday. Yes. It's what we always say with those days. It's like quit smoking day. It's the day you start not smoking anymore. <laughs> it's not just one day in the year where you give it a break and then the rest of the year you carry on as normal. Uh, and I know you can get tired of all these special days, but data privacy is important because once you've let it out, it's kind of hard and takes a lot of time to sort of recapture what you didn't want to leak. Okay. So yeah, forget the FOMO, love the German. <laughs> Very good. That is tax scam emails are alive and well as U.S. tax season starts on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And now let us talk about this alleged Carter gang mastermind 
and three acolytes under arrest in Russia. What happened? This is like cutting off a few heads of a hydra, and then they grow back, I'm guessing. Certainly seems so, Doug. Uh, This is a gang known as the Infraud Organization. That was their name. And their motto was, In Fraud We Trust, Hmm. which I presume is a poor taste joke on, what does it say on the $1 bill? In God We Trust, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? And 36 people were alleged to, to belong to this gang by getting themselves listed in an indictment in the US back in 2018. Now, unfortunately, they're only able to arrest 13 of those people, and they were spread across seven different countries. As we've said often before, it's sort of like that cybercrime abhors a vacuum thing, that the rest, it seems, formed back up, like you say, like a hydra growing back heads, and the whole thing carried on. And anyway, one of the people mentioned that in that indictment three years ago was a chap by the name of Andre Novak. Unicc was one of his handles. Fax, with three X's. Faxtrod, those were his online handles. Apparently, he has now been busted in Russia, along with three other people. Uh, I don't have their names handy, but they weren't on the original charge sheet. Sounds like either they weren't known before, or they're people who've kind of come to fill the vacuum left by the departure of others. So it's an interesting reminder, as you say, that that cybercrime does have this Hydra-like property often. You can chop off even quite a lot of heads, and they'll sort of grow back or reappear in other with other names, other faces, other places, and carry on. And even back in 2018, the US DOJ was claiming that they had basically $500 million worth of fraud that they could essentially prove, what they call actual losses. And then they had another $2 billion that were referred to as intended losses. So that gives you an idea of the scale of this operation. It's sort of as big as or bigger than modern ransomware gangs that we hear about. But still, three years ago, they were already apparently 500 million to the good. Thus, in fraud we trust. Maybe that motto just got a little bit more tarnished with this bust in Russia. All right, that is alleged Carter gang mastermind and three acolytes under arrest in Russia on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for This Week in Tech History This Week. On January 26, 1983, Lotus 1-2-3 was released. The spreadsheet plus database plus graphical charting program, hence the 123, was believed to play a large role in the success of IBM PC compatible computers throughout the 80s, quickly surpassing the Apple centric VisiCalc in sales. Lotus was slow to respond to Windows 3.0's graphical user interface and was effectively killed off by Microsoft Excel in the early 90s. And Paul, please tell me you have some stories about the glory days of Lotus 123. The only one I can think of off the top of my head, going back, I guess, to the 90s, was a joke that my wife told me. She was going through the newspaper. Remember them? <laughs> you know, flipping <laughs> Barely. Through, and she got, to the, she got to the classified ads where somebody was looking for help with their computers. This person obviously had a deep misunderstanding of what they were after because they were looking for someone who knew D-Base, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. But also they wanted someone who knew Lotus 1, Lotus 2, and Lotus 3. <laughs> so I presume they figured, oh, I don't know which version we've got. Uh, you better know all of them. <laughs> that was one of our 
sort of household jokes for quite some time. Lovely. All right, well, let's talk about this crypto.com. So th this was a 2FA bypass, and I thought 2FA was supposed to be impenetrable. So let's talk about what happened, and then we'll go through uh, the myriad ways that 2FA can actually go wrong. So what happened in this theft? Well, cryptocurrency company suffers unexpected behavior of website, Doug. Hmm. That doesn't happen often, does it? Mm -mm. Anyway. This is a company, it's actually, I believe, called Forest Dax MT Limited of Malta, but they're better known by Crypto.com, which is the domain they own. And they're a cryptocurrency trading company. And it seems that earlier in January, 483 customers of theirs experienced what I guess you can call phantom withdrawals, ghost withdrawals. In other words, it wasn't just one or two people. There was a, a sudden spate of withdrawals where people said, no, no, I definitely didn't do that. And of course, they uh, uh, well, that's that easy for you to say. But apparently, when they investigated, they realized that these withdrawals were very unusual indeed. And ultimately, anyone who lost money in this way, Crypto.com is claiming they've been reimbursed or they will be reimbursed. But the important thing is that they, they put out a security breach report. Good on them. Sadly, many cases of if it's a cryptocurrency scam where people put in money and then there's a breach and then everyone disappears, the only report you get is everyone else saying, oh dear, they did a rug pull, they took the money and ran off. So in this case, they did come up with a, a security report that explained what I just said. So they said all accounts found to be affected were fully restored. And they also said transactions were being approved without the 2FA authentication control being inputted by the user. And that was all they said. So they didn't say how or why. So I found that data breach notification very underwhelming. Go and read it. It's a good example of what not to say because it just raises 20 more questions. And importantly, what did actually go wrong with the 2FA in this case? And that left me thinking, what kind of things could go wrong if you're someone reading this story and thinking, hey, I've got a 2FA solution. Where should I be focusing my attention? Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the ways that 2FA could go wrong. You have five here. The first being a fundamental flaw in the underlying 2FA system. That's one way that it could go wrong. The system just doesn't work. And one way that it might not work is, let's say you're using SMS-based two-factor authentication, and you know the code that comes up is random. Let's say there's actually a flaw in the code, and it's possible, say, from the time of day, or the country you're in, or some other background circumstance. Let's say you can make a jolly good guess of what the next random number coming up is going to be. It's well worth having a go at their account. You can only really fix this by going and patching the 2FA code itself. But that's not commensurate with, oh, the 2FA didn't require anybody to input a code. So that's one way that it can go wrong. Visibly it's working. Somebody's entering a code. Everything in the logs will look right, but it wasn't the right person entering the code because somebody was able to guess. Okay, then we've got a breach of the 2FA authentication database. Yes, that's another way that 2FA could go wrong. Let's say you're not using SMS two-factor authentication. You're using one that's based on one of those uh, TOTP authenticator apps. You seed them by scanning in a QR code or typing in some weird base 32 combination of letters and numbers when you set up an account. That's stored securely in your phone, you hope. 
So that sounds great, except that it means that at the other end, it's not like storing a conventional password because we've spoken about this on the podcast, written about it on Naked Security many times, got a fantastic article from a few years ago about how to store passwords securely. When you're dealing with someone typing in a password, you don't need to store the real password, do you? You can store a hash, a salted, stretched hash of the password. But with 2FA based on those code sequences, both the client and the server need to have access to the plain text starting seed, that QR code you scanned in at the beginning, And so if the server gets breached and someone gets hold of those starting seeds for a whole load of accounts, basically they can then set up their own phone to generate exactly the same sequence as somebody else's. And that would be a complete bypass of the 2FA. But the 2FA would still be apparently doing its job in the logs. So somebody would be inputting the code and it would show up that somebody inputted the code, just wouldn't be the right person again. Okay, poor coding in the online login process. Basically, in your login process, there are typically many ways you can do it, even if you have 2FA and even if it's mandatory. So most accounts have some kind of password reset system or they have some kind of, I don't have my phone, I want to use one of the backup codes that I printed out and put in my safe. So they have typically a number of different ways in which the front end of the authentication system can interact with the back end, including the part that does 2FA. And it is possible that the 2FA system itself could be working perfectly, that the SMS codes have perfectly random numbers, that the generator sequences, that the seeds have not been stolen, but that there's some way, say from the website, some weird header you can add to a web request or some extra secret parameter you can add to the request that somehow indicates I want to skip that part. And it is up to the back end whether it actually calls on the two-factor authentication or not. The two-factor authentication system itself doesn't protect the system that it's supposed to protect if it's never called upon to do so by some kind of mistake. Okay, and then this one is always a challenge. Weak internal controls to detect risky behavior by support or IT staff, the so-called insider, as it were. Memories of the Twitter attack of 2020, if you remember that. What was it? Elon Musk, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Apple Computer. About 40-something very, very high-profile accounts all got compromised at the same time. And it seems that the ultimate reason is that some person or persons unknown inside Twitter doesn't look like they were corrupt or they did anything wrong. They were just kind of too helpful. And they they gave the crooks enough information that the crooks were able to do password resets on those accounts and come in with or without two-factor authentication. So you can keep 2FA going, but actually lock out the real user and lock yourself in instead, in which case you'd still be inputting the code. Once again, it would be the wrong person. And that, like you said, is a very, very hard thing to defend against, particularly and perhaps ironically, if you genuinely do have a really helpful support department. Unfortunately, somebody could get into the spirit of that inside your organization without complying with the letter of it, and they could let the side down, even though their motivation was the very, very best. They weren't corrupt. They weren't crooked. They weren't lazy. They're actually almost trying too hard. 
A nice segue to our final point and an interesting one, fail open behavior in the authentication process. Yeah, I guess that's the technological version of someone in support being, if you like, too helpful. When you think about security systems, cybersecurity systems or physical security systems, they're generally expected to fail cleanly in one of two ways. Fail open, so things like electric circuits. When your mains trips, it fails open, so the current is off. And there are other things that are like bank vaults. You'd normally expect them to fail closed. (laughs) Otherwise, if there was a power failure, someone could sneak in and steal all your gold bars. And sometimes it's hard to know which is the right one for which circumstance. For example, if let's say the 2FA back end, let's say relying on some cloud-based service and it completely breaks, do you want nobody to be able to log in? And you just say, we're really sorry, logins are suppressed until we fix this. Or do you actually think, well, we're only treating 2FA as a bit of like an add-on extra. So to avoid people getting too antsy, we'll, we'll just not ask for the number until we fix the back end. In other words, we'll fail back to 1FA. And that means if you have 2FA yourself and you want to go and review, hey, am I doing it right? It's not just enough to go, did I buy the right product? Did I install it correctly? Yes, there it is. Is it working? Do a trial login. Yeah, it's fine. Because there are all the ancillary things about how you integrated it into your business, into your technology, into your customer workflow that could let you down as well. And there's nothing worse than something that gives you an inflated sense of security when in fact you don't have anything at all. Okay, well, as uh, Crypto.com says, they have migrated to a completely new 2FA infrastructure, and they did this, Paul, out of an abundance of caution, wouldn't you know? So, Yes, I've never got on with those words. (laughs) I know that they're kind of a must-have in modern data breach notifications, but, you know, if someone's telling me about a data breach they've had, I don't want to think that now they're suddenly having an abundance of caution because it implies they're just doing things in the hope that they might add some security magic. That's how it sounds to me. And in this case, if they go, hey, don't worry, we've got a completely new 2FA back end, making that change in this case, because they're not saying how the bypass happened, it's not clear whether changing the underlying technology will make any difference at all. I would prefer in a data breach notification when it talks about what you have done, that you have taken appropriate precautions, ones that you know work and that aren't wasting your time doing things that aren't going to help but sound good. Not that I feel strongly about it. (laughs) And we have some advice, and this is a good one. If you're looking at adding 2FA to your own online services, don't just test the obvious parts of the system. Yes, as I said in my I hope it wasn't an overreaction to the words abundance of caution. Hey, we had 2FA problems, so we ripped out the whole 2FA system and put in a brand new one. That seems like an obvious fix, but that's like saying, you know what, my flat got burgled, so I've had a new front door put in, and then later you found out, find out that actually the person climbed in over the balcony, and it's your balcony doors that you leave open all the time to where the problem <laughs> was. If you have had a data breach of this sort, then... Fix what you've got, take appropriate precautions to deal with what happened this time, and then go and review everything, including the things that you might not have thought about before. Because the only thing worse than suffering one data breach is suffering another data breach shortly afterwards. 
if trust in your business was dented before, <laughs> you might say that it's had a hole punched in it the second time. And this is a great one. If you're in PR or marketing, make sure the whole company practices how it will react if a breach should occur. So have a, a breach response plan, in other words. Yes. In the old days, we used to say to people, when it comes to building your antivirus policy, when it was all about malware and self-spreading viruses, you need to think about what you're going to say if it turns out that you're the company that's been massively spreading the next love bug and all the fingers <laughs> are pointing back at you and you look very bad because that was an extra super bad look when you were the typhoid Mary. Your business was okay, but everyone else was getting hammered by you. And of course, if that were to happen, even back then, it was much too late to go and think, hey, I wonder how we should deal with this. And it's even more important now that data breach notifications have both a moral necessity for your customers and a legal necessity from the regulator. You can't afford to have time eaten up when your techies are actually trying to deal with a breach that has just happened, figuring out at the same time who you need to contact, what you're going to say, who's going to say it, how you're going to say it. So planning what you would say if there were an attack is not an admission that you expect an attack to occur. It's just being wise and recognizing that preparation is, by definition, only ever something that you can do in advance. All right. Well, that is a crypto coin broker. Crypto.com says 2FA bypass led to $35 million theft. And as the sun begins to set on our show for the week, we leave you with the oh no from Reddit user City Gentry, who writes, one from a colleague of mine who looks after support for our telephone and conference equipment. User calls and says they can't dial into a phone conference because their phone doesn't have the correct button on it. They explain they can dial the general conference number, but they can't enter the five-digit code to connect them to their specific conference call. So colleague asks them for the number and for permission to connect as a test. User agrees. Colleague connects without issue. Colleague is puzzled and asks the user to go through it again step-by-step step with them saying what buttons they're pressing as they're pressing it. Everything's okay until the user gets to the five-digit code, which has a nice sequence. Seven, eight, nine, ten. You can see where this is going. Easy to remember, easy to type. However, the user explains that their phone keypad only goes from <laughs> zero to nine. Oh, dear. So they don't have a 10 key. The colleague goes on mute for a few seconds, and once they've stopped laughing, they diplomatically suggest someone may have given them an incorrect code and to try one zero not 10. That is a very diplomatic reply. Good on. That is very well done. Yep. But that is tech support, isn't it? It is. It is like for anyone who's ever done it, mysteries never cease. So true. Well, all's well that ends well. And if you have an no-no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.